These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I want you to imagine for a second that Jesus said that to you this morning. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel angry or upset or sad? Does it offend you? I want us to look this morning at this passage um, through a new lens. I want us to look at this passage through the lens that Jesus loved the Pharisees. And I say that not ignorant to the fact that Jesus was angry with the Pharisees. He, he burned with a righteous anger against these, these men who, who had access to the scriptures, who were educated, who had opportunity to learn about God, and yet lifted their, their traditions up to the same level as God's law, and, and piled this weight of expectation on all the people around them. Their hearts were hard and filled with pride and were, were hypocrites. So I'm not ignorant to the fact that Jesus was angry with them. But I put it to you this morning that Jesus loved the Pharisees. Let me, let me explain it a different way. I want you to imagine for a second that we've got a doctor here. And three patients come to the doctor. Uh, and the first patient comes to the doctor and, and says, oh, doctor, I've got an infection. The second person comes to the doctor and says, I've got a broken arm. And the third person comes to the doctor and says, I've got cancer. And the doctor looks at all three of his patients and he says to them, oh, antibiotics, you all need antibiotics. That's all you need. Have antibiotics. Now, now go away and leave me alone. We'd look at that doctor and we'd say, that is a poor doctor. Why? Because the treatment that he's prescribed doesn't match the ailments that these people have. No, the doctor would say to the person with the infection, have some antibiotics. He'd say to the person with the broken arm, let's get that set and let it heal. And he'd say to the person with cancer, right, we might need to do surgery and chemotherapy, whatever else. The treatment matches the problem that that, that person is facing, the ailment or the illness. The Bible, or we, we refer to Jesus as the great physician, the great doctor. Why? We refer to him that because not only did he do a lot of physical healings and miracles, but, but also because he came to spiritually uh, resurrect us, to spiritually give us life where we didn't have it. He is a good doctor, but like any good doctor, he knows the treatment that is required for the, for the sin that people have, the problems that people are facing. The prostitutes and the tax collectors and, and the sinners already knew that they were, they were sinners. They, they knew that they were social outcasts. The Pharisees made it very clear to them that, that they didn't want anything to do with these people. They knew that was the problem. So the last thing they needed, and Jesus knew this, the last thing they needed was him coming along and condemning them even further. No, he came and told them that, that the son that walked away from his father and went and lived a, a life of sin came home and his father ran to meet him and embraced him. That was his message to those people. But the Pharisees' hearts were full of pride and hypocrisy. And so the treatment was very different. You know, pride is, is the cancer of the spiritual heart. Pride is the cancer of the spiritual heart. And so he applies something as brutal as we see today in chemotherapy to them. We, uh, Emily and I, we've uh, had a friend who's recently gone 
um, through, or recently been fighting, fighting breast cancer. And so she had to have surgery and then rounds of chemotherapy. And anyone who's either witnessed someone going through chemotherapy or, or, or experienced it themselves knows that, that chemotherapy, yes, it attacks the cancer, but it also attacks their body as well. And why do doctors choose to treat people that way? Well, they treat them that way because they, they observe that the risk is worth the reward. That actually, it's effective at fighting the cancer. And once the cancer is gone, that person can heal and then go on to live, hopefully, a, a fruitful life afterwards. Jesus sees here that the risk is worth the reward. Why does he say those words to them out of Isaiah? He knows that it's going to be insulting. His, Pharisee, his, his disciples come to him and say, did, did you know you offended the, the Pharisees? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he knew he offended the Pharisees saying that. I, I would know if I said that to someone that I was, I was going to be offending them this morning. But he said it because he wanted to break their callous hearts. He wanted to show them that there is a different way. And I believe that if they had repented and come to Jesus, that he would have embraced them just the same as any other sinner. And that's the lens we're going to look at through this morning. Next thing I wanted to say to you was that motives matter. Why we do something for God matters. I'm going to tell you a testimony, and just, to, just going to forewarn you about this testimony. Most people, when they tell testimonies of, of how Jesus impacted their life, and especially relating to alcohol, uh, it goes a little bit something like this. Uh, I was struggling with alcohol, I met Jesus, and now I, don't, now I don't struggle with alcohol. Mine is a little bit back to front. I didn't drink, I met Jesus, I now drink. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit back to front, but bear with me. Bear with me as I explain this. I was 16 at the time. And uh, I started getting invited to parties with, uh, with some of my friends. And, and just to explain, when I say parties, I'm not talking about party hats on and, and cakes and birthday candles and, you know, pineapple and cheese on sticks. Uh, I, I'm talking a different sort of party here. And, and these parties I would go to, and I'm telling you, 16-year-olds can be incredibly resourceful at getting contraband when they... When they when they need to. Uh, there was a lot of alcohol, uh, there was a lot of other stuff, a lot of cigarettes, there's all, all manner of things that really we shouldn't have had. But I was a good Christian boy. I, I came from a respectable background. Uh, I was one of the spiritual elite. And so I went to one of these parties, and I, I'm, I'm quite happy to admit it, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I, I, had a, I had a drink at one of these parties, and I was so ashamed of myself, so appalled at the fact that I'd, that I'd done this. But even more than that, I, I wasn't alone at these parties. I had some other of my friends there who were also good Christian boys who didn't seem to struggle with <laughs> the same things that, that I struggled with in terms of engaging with the revelries. And I was even more appalled at the fact that my friends would, would engage in things like that. So I made myself a promise. I said on that day that I'm never going to drink alcohol again. I'm not going to drink again. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, you shouldn't have been drinking alcohol anyway. And you're quite right. I shouldn't have been drinking when I was 16. So the rest of my 16s, I, I didn't drink any alcohol. The rest of my 17s, I didn't drink any alcohol. But then I turned 18. And I still didn't drink any alcohol. And then I turned 19, and I still didn't drink any alcohol. In fact, it was 20 when I had my, had my first drink, uh, influenced by some 2030s group from 
Richmond's Breakfast Chips. <laughs> Is there anything wrong with not drinking alcohol? Absolutely not. If you don't drink because you don't want to or for health reasons or, or because you, you believe it's a, a good discipline for your life, great. I completely endorse that. That's great. Why was it a problem? It was a problem because I was not drinking to prove to my friends that I was better, that I was spiritually superior than they were, that I, look at me, God, look how good I am. I can go through life without needing any alcohol. I can go through life without drinking. Look how much better I am than my, my other Christian friends, my other counterpart people. That's why I wasn't drinking. And so God challenged me on my motives. He said, that's not good enough. That's not a good enough reason. So then I started to drink. And I haven't stopped since. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Pharisees love the rule book. Pharisees love the rule book. That's what they live by. They live by the letter of the law. They're interested in how you perform, how closely you follow the law, and if possible, how many traditions do you follow as well to make you extra holy, to make you extra acceptable to God. But Jesus looks at the condition of your heart, and our motives are a direct indicator of the condition of our heart. If we worship with poor motives, then we worship in vain. If we teach or speak to one another with poor motives, then they're just merely human rules. What are your motives? Do you live under the letter of the law? Do you try and earn your salvation? Do you try and show off to God and show how much better you are than all these other sinners? Or do you live with the spirit of the law? Where Jesus says, you come to me by grace, not by anything you do. What is more important to you? So motives matter. Second is love people, address the sin. Love the people, address the sin. You know, many Christians I've found have a bit of a skewed, bit of a bad theology on sin. A Pharisee does this. A Pharisee says, that person over there, that person, I saw them get drunk last night. They shouldn't be here. They don't belong in our company. They're a bad influence on our children. They, they don't belong in this place. They're an insult to God and to his people. They should leave. That's what a Pharisee does. But we're called to love the people and address the sin. You see, a Pharisee condemns the person and neglects the sin. But we're called to love the person and address the sin. Do you know that when someone gets drunk, that is not the start of the sin? When someone looks at pornography, that is not the start of the sin. When someone sleeps with another man's wife, that is not the start of the sin. Jesus makes it perfectly clear. The sin happened way before that point in the person's heart. And what you see when you see those things is the outworking of that sin, the maturing of that sin that comes out into our physical actions. 
And what the Pharisees were doing was they were looking at someone's outward appearance and saying, let's condemn that person because they sinned. And Jesus is saying, that's not the right answer. That doesn't help anyone. That doesn't save anyone. But we're called to love people, to embrace people, to say, come in and let's address the sin together. Let's disciple you. Let's introduce you to Jesus. That's why they were called blind guides. They couldn't see that they got sin in their own lives and they didn't know how to address the sin in other people's lives. They didn't know how to save. I don't know whether any of you have had a cam belt go on a car before. Anyone had a cam belt go on a car before while it was running? Yeah, it's not great. Uh, The reason they tell you to get your cam belt changed before it goes is because if it goes while the engine's running, it it can do quite a lot of damage. Uh, I had this experience once, um, and and, uh, my my cam belt went on my car, I broke down. Um, I have to apologize to my friend Richard Whitney over there. He he received a whole load of abuse down the phone from me at the time, um, and uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, My friends have to put up with a lot uh, from me. But uh, my, my car, went, my camber went on my car, um, it, it, it uh, damaged the engine. And so, of course, I rang the AA and said, uh, and they, they came and they said, well, where do you want us to take your car? And I said, take it to David Dexter's, uh, uh, please. And, and that's what they did. But let's imagine for a second that I didn't do that. Let's imagine I said to them, actually, I want it put on my drive, please. Please take us home and pop the car on my drive. What do I do now? I've got this car on my drive, and to be frank, it, it doesn't work. It's, it's useless for all intents and purposes. It, it, it won't run. I think, but, yeah, but I don't want people to see that. I don't want people to think I've got a broken car and I can't get about. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go down and I'm going to clean my car. I'm going to wash all the paintwork. I'm going to polish it. I'm going to clean the wheels. I'm going to vacuum the interior out. I'm going to take away all of, all of the dirt. I'm going to make it look as if it were brand new. And I'm sure people would walk past that car and go, yeah, that's a nice car. It looks, it's probably one of those weekend runners, you know, that, that they don't take out that often. Um, but if someone came to try and buy that car or start that car and go anywhere, it wouldn't take long for them to figure out that there's something wrong. It doesn't run. It doesn't work. Okay, so maybe that's not the best idea. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to save a bob or two. I'm going to save some money. I'm going to go online, go onto YouTube, and, and find a self-help guide to, to, to fix my car, to sort the cam belt out. And I go online, and it says, how to fix a cam belt with just a hammer and a roll of gaffer tape. And uh, you already know at this point that it's not going to go well. You already know at this point that something is going to go badly wrong. At best, you're going to be left with a car still that doesn't work. At worst, you're going to hurt the car more and yourself probably in the process. Probably not a good idea. So what's my only option? My only option was what I actually did, which was take it to uh, people who have the expertise and the tools to fix my car. And when the car goes in, they don't care about the paintwork. They don't care about how clean it is on the inside. They, they, they care about the engine. They lift the engine out. They take the engine apart. They find what's broken in it. They replace it. They put the engine back together. They put it in. And the car is then a car again. It then runs. Are you spending all your effort in your life, making the outside clean and look really good and really acceptable to to society and to other people. But 
Actually, you never gave your heart to Jesus. Maybe you gave your head to Jesus, I don't know. But maybe you haven't given your heart to Jesus and it's still broken. It doesn't run. Or maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who thinks, well, yeah, I know there's something wrong. I'm going to take maths into my own hands. I'm going to find a self-help guide. I'm going to try and fix myself. Take my advice. It doesn't work. And you can do more damage to yourself in the process of trying. Or, are, or is the Holy Spirit convicting you this morning that actually the only place to get fixed is to take your heart to the great doctor, to the great physician, Jesus, who isn't concerned about what he sees on the outside. He's concerned with getting your heart running right first. I'm not ignorant to the fact that this requires courage. It requires vulnerability, especially if you're someone who has been in church a long time. I know that it requires those things, but I also know that Jesus, my King, is faithful to finish what he sets out to, to complete. He's faithful to finish those, that work. He isn't going to leave you with your heart hanging out. or He isn't going to leave you with, a, with, with, with your heart not working quite right, but just getting by. He's faithful to finish the work that he starts. I'm going to finish, finish with this. You know, uh, in a minute, I'm going, to, I'm going to invite you to respond. And, uh, and it's going to be very non-theatrical. It's, uh, it's going to be something you can do in your seats. I'm going to say a prayer. And if you agree with it, you agree with it in your heart. And you can say amen. Uh, but before that, I just wanted to tell you of another Pharisee in the Bible who uh, did repent and did give his heart to Jesus. His name was Saul, uh, later changed to Paul. And, and he did fall on his knees, and he did give his heart to God. Because Paul gave his heart to God, 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament were written by him. That's nearly half of what's in the New Testament was written by Paul. Paul was instrumentally used in the starting of the early church. And more importantly, he went and he reached Gentiles. He went and he preached the gospel to Gentiles. That's you and me. Part of our heritage as a church and as a faith is because a Pharisee was used by Jesus. And I wanted to encourage you this morning that if you are challenged, not just maybe that you've got some unresolved sin that you want to give to Jesus. But perhaps you're challenged this morning that there are some pharisaical qualities, like me. I have pharisaical qualities in my heart that I have to get dealt with, I have to ask Jesus to deal with. Maybe that's you as well. I wanted to encourage you that God can take a Pharisee and do incredibly powerful things with that person. I'm going to say this prayer, and I'm going to say it slowly. And... If you want to either invite Jesus into your life or if you want to recommit your life to Jesus or if maybe you gave your head to Jesus a long time ago but you still haven't given your heart to Jesus, then this prayer is for you and um, I'm going to say it slowly and if you agree with it, say amen at the end with me and then I'm going to hand back over to John I think, or Mark. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you that you came to die for me. 
I am sorry for my sin and that I have kept my proud heart from you. I repent and turn away from my sin. I believe that you are faithful to fix what is broken in my life. Jesus, please come into my heart now. Heal the damage. Remove the mess. Destroy the idols. Holy Spirit, please renew my body, mind, and spirit. Please make me fruitful in your kingdom, a witness to everyone I meet of your unfailing and all-powerful love. Amen.